Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday the 20th of April 2022 News. Give most vulnerable £1,000 off bills, says Scottish Power Chief. This article is by Martin Williams. The head of Glasgow-based energy firm Scottish Power has called for the poorest people in the country to get £1,000 off their energy bills amid warnings that 4 in 10 could fall into fuel poverty in October. Keith Anderson, who admitted the scale of the impending deepening crisis was beyond what I can deal with, wants the energy cap replaced with a discount that could be paid back in 10 years. He said that would ease the price hikes for those in fuel poverty and be paid for by those who can afford to pay or through government support. Energy firm chief executives have told MPs investigating energy prices that there needs to be unprecedented measures to prevent a fuel poverty crisis next winter. Around 1.5 million Scots households are to see their energy bills soar by up to £693 a year after the regulator Ofgem hiked the price cap by the biggest increase yet. From April the 1st, the three in four customers in default tariffs paying by direct debit saw an increase of £693 from £1,277 to £1,971, while the rest who are on prepayment metres and tend to be amongst the most vulnerable have seen a rise of £708 from £1,309 to £2,017. The sharp 54% rise, which will impact half the population, was said to be driven by a record rise in global gas prices, with wholesale prices quadrupling in the last year. Researchers are predicting further hikes in average annual bills in October. Analysis Cornwall Insight predict the cap is predicted to increase by a further 32%. Responding to Mr Anderson's comments, Shadow Secretary of State for Scotland Ian Murray said, Mr Anderson's evidence backs up what Scottish Labour have been saying in black and white for months. We need a 1,000 plan to tackle the cost of living crisis. Scottish Power's evidence was a damning indictment both of the UK and Scottish Government's record on the cost of living. Mr Anderson's comments confirm that Scottish Labour's plan, which could save over £1,000 for struggling households, is the right way to tackle the cost of living crisis head on. For four in ten of us facing fuel poverty in October, it is time for the SNP to stop pretending they can't do anything to help and get to work. Scottish Labour are the only party with a plan to tackle the cost of living crisis. Energy chief executives told the Business Energy and Industrial Strategy Committee 
that while prepayment customers were already being hit hard from the effects of rising bills, they expect the number in financial distress to only increase as the months go on ahead of another expected leap in the energy price cap from October. And Mr Anderson's call for the cap system blamed for the failure of dozens of competitors as they were unable to pass on huge rises in raw energy costs to be scrapped in favour of a social tariff that would see the better off pay more. He also suggested that in the interim, a deficit fund should be established to allow people 10 years to pay off £1,000 on their bills. My biggest concern is actually when we get to October, particularly around the most vulnerable and the poorest, and that tends to match with people on a prepayment metre. In June and the summer, their consumption will go down, so their bills will be more manageable. Come October, that's going to get horrific, truly horrific. And it's got to a stage now where I honestly believe the size and scale of this is beyond what I can deal with. It's beyond what I think this industry can deal with. And I think it needs a massive shift, significant shift in the government policy and approach towards this. He said a helpline launched by Scottish Power last week received 8,000 calls from people airing concerns about ability to pay. There's a massive concern from people, a huge amount of anxiety for people on the phones about what they're going to do and the concern they face, he said. And there's a real, real worry from a lot of people for the first time facing this issue. They've never been in this position before. All we're doing with people is to encourage them to talk to us, to speak to us, because that's the way we can help them. And that's what we need people to do is by keep contacting us. He indicated the fund could be paid off by the rest of customers who can afford their bills or the government could partially fund it. I think the problem has got to the size and scale that it requires something significant of that nature, where for those people who are deemed to be in poverty, fuel poverty or vulnerable need something that puts their bill back to where it used to be before the crisis, you can then spread it out over a 10-year period across the rest of the customer base, said Mr Anderson. And then to me, that's stage one of moving to a social tariff, which is what I think this country needs to have. And we should implement it when we get a bit more stability and a bit less volatility in the market. The cap should be changed to be a social tariff targeted to discount the price to people in poverty. Right now, people in a prepayment meter pay more, and that is perverse. And a social tariff should be brought in to discount the price for people in fuel poverty, and people in a prepayment, and the cost of that should be borne by those who can afford to pay. Chris O'Shea, the boss of Scottish Gas, owner Centrica, said that the UK's largest supplier had seen a rise of 125,000 households in debt over the past 12 months. It meant, he said, that 715,000 people owed money to the company across the UK already and warned the number would continue to climb. E.ON UK Chief Executive Michael Lewis said his company would support a social tariff but called it a long-term measure. He said that between 30% and 40% of people in Britain might go into fuel poverty from October when the price cap is likely to rise significantly again, 
EDF estimates that its most valuable tenth of customers will go from paying £1 in every £12 they have on energy bills to £1 in every £6. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Wednesday the 20th of April 2022. News. Scottish Salmon Farm Lice Cleaning System Trialed. This article is by Brian Donnelly. A new water purification system to help the treatment of sea lice on farmed salmon is to be tested in Scotland. The system will be trialled for the first time alongside a medicine used to treat sea lice in what is claimed could provide a boost for fish health and clean the water in which they have been treated. It comes against the backdrop of £40 million a year costs of managing sea lice in Scotland, said to be considered the greatest biological challenge to the aquaculture sector. The new system, called Clean Treat, is developed by aquaculture biotechnology firm Benchmark and will be tested at a Maui fish farm over the next month in a trial backed by the University of Stirling and the Sustainable Aquaculture Innovation Centre. The consortium will test the efficacy of Clean Treat in removing Salmosin Vet, a treatment for sea lice, aiming to determine how and in what quantities it can be filtered from treatment water. It is claimed that introducing Clean Treat could allow fish farmers to respond more quickly to sea lice challenges and improve the process of treating fish for farmers. Mark Todman of Benchmark said, Clean Treat could enable the use of efficacious and high welfare medicines like Salmosin Vet in the most environmentally responsible manner possible, providing the best outcomes for both farmers and their fish. Dougie Hunter of Maui said, We take a number of different approaches to supporting their welfare, including the use of medicines. However, we are always conscious of any potential environmental impact and the introduction of Clean Treat could help alleviate some of the current limitations of Samuelson Vet. This could be a significant boost to fish health and welfare across our sites. Heather Jones, SAIC Chief Executive, said it is important to note that it is an enhancement of an already closely controlled and tightly regulated process. This article is by Brian Donnelly. Reported from the Herald on the 20th of April 2022 from the sports section. Confident Rangers fans can get hands on Europa League final tickets. Here's how, by Aidan Smith. Ticket sales for the 2022 Europa League final have started via UEFA and will run until April 28th. As usual, fans of the two teams in the final and the general public are being allocated the majority of the tickets for the final, which will be played at the Estadio Ramon Sanchez Pijan in the Seville, Spain, on Wednesday, May 18th. A total of 33,000 tickets out of 40,000, the stadium's capacity for the final, are available for fans and the general public to purchase. The two teams that reach the final will receive 10,000 each, while 13,000 tickets are being offered for sale to fans worldwide via UEFA.com. 8,000 of the tickets reserved for the fans for the two teams will be offered for free to reward the lifeblood of the game for their loyal support during the pandemic. The ticket sale and allocation process for the tickets reserved for the fans of the finalists will be organised by the clubs involved, including the allocation of the free tickets. 
The remaining tickets are for the local organising structure, UEFA, and national associations, commercial partners and broadcasters. For this sales process on UEFA.com, tickets will not be sold on a first-come, first-served basis. Instead, a ballot will be conducted to allocate the tickets once the application period has ended. The price category for the tickets for the general public are Category 4, €40, Euros, Category 3, €65, Euros, Category 2, €100, Euros, Category 1, €150. Euros. Accessibility tickets for disabled spectators are available for €40. Euros. Ticket priced at Category 4 rate of one companion ticket provided for free. Applicants can apply for up to four tickets per person. The tickets will be personalised and each applicant is required to provide their personal details and guest details on the ticket portal. They will be informed by email by May 6th, 2022 at the latest as to whether their application has been successful or not. Applicants will also be able to log to check the status of their application on the ticket portal with their login information. Tickets will be delivered via the official UEFA mobile tickets app from 10 days before the match. Ticket holders will need to download the official app, which is available for Android and iPhone users. With this app, fans who have tickets can securely download, transfer, keep or assign a guest a ticket anytime and anywhere on an iOS Android smartphone. That article was by Aidan Smith. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 20th of April 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Scottish author Ali Smith is back after the success of her seasonal quartet. By Herald Magazine. Fiction. 1. Companion Piece by Ali Smith is published in hardback by Hamish Hamilton, priced £16.99, ebook £9.99. After her ambitious seasonal quartet, Ali Smith returns with Companion Piece, centred on COVID-19 and the seemingly endless lockdown. Smith's characteristic wordplay dominates as Sandy, aka Shifting Sand, confronts the anxieties of the times. As she cares from afar for a father in hospital, Sandy is contacted by former classmate Martina. It's clear they were never friends, who shares a strange experience, but won't leave her alone until her entire family have taken over the house. Writing with a sharp wit and equally sharp tongue, Smith shifts between reality and vision, with the bookworm Sandy taking comfort in literary companions to guide her through and responding to Martina's question with a story drawing many of the strands together without tying them into a knot. In companion piece, Smith continues to ask the most important questions of her time. 9 out of 10. Review by Ian Parker. 2. Paradise by Fernanda Melcher. Translated by Sophie Hughes. Is published in paperback by Fitzcarraldo. £10.99. Ebook £4.99. Set in the author's native Mexico, Paradise is a short but relentless read about a pair of dispossessed youths whose all-consuming fury at their place within the social system leads them down a sinister path. Polo, a 16-year-old dropout, is forced to work as a cleaner on the upper-class estate, Paradise. Here he meets Franco, a rich but deplorable outcast who Polo uses for free booze and cigarettes while being forced to listen to Franco's benign sexual fantasies about his middle-aged neighbour. As weeks pass, Franco becomes increasingly obsessed with the idea that he can conquer his neighbour, and Polo cannot resist tagging along for the ride. Written in an all-consuming modernist style, Paradise immerses the reader in Polo's thoughts, taking you with him down a spiral of loneliness that can only be filled with alcohol, rebellion and a bitter nostalgia for his dead grandfather. 7 out of 10, review by Scarlett Sangster. 
3. Yinka, Where Is Your Husband? by Lizzie Damalola Blackburn is published in hardback by Viking. Priced £14.99, ebook £5.99. A young woman navigates a demanding family desperate to find her a husband, particularly as her younger sister was married before her. Yinka struggles to balance her family's more traditional Nigerian culture with her work in an investment bank. Although centred round finding a husband, or husband, it's quickly made evident there is more to Yinka than just her dating life. Her story is told cleverly and wittily, with occasional cringeworthy moments, but the main character remains lovable, if slightly unbelievably naive, throughout the novel. The book is firmly rooted in its setting, London, specifically Peckham. Readers unfamiliar with the city may find it harder to relate to, but it's still a funny and light-hearted novel overall. 7 out of 10. Review by Sonia Twig. Non-fiction. 4. This Woman's Work. Essays and Music, edited by Kim Gordon and Sinead Gleason. is published in hardback by White Rabbit, priced £20, ebook £9.99. If approaching this collection expecting a feminist critique of the music industry, readers will be surprised but not necessarily disappointed to find a series of nostalgic ruminations from critics, essayists and industry professionals about the personal significance of music in their lives. This eclectic collection invites you to indulge in the fandom, influence and experiences, good and bad, brought about by the artists each contributor most admires. A tip for readers, don't read in order. You won't know all of the artists and many are hard to track down in streaming libraries. This might be off-putting for some and makes certain chapters more difficult to relate to, but if you can find them, listening to the artist as you read gives the collection a whole new level of immersion. Who knows, maybe future editions will be published with a mixtape. 7 out of 10, review by Scarlett Sangster. Children's Book of the Week 5. The Drama Lama by Rachel Morrisrow Illustrated by Ella Oxstad. It's published in paperback by Puffin, price £6.99, ebook £3.99. The Drama Llama is a bright and engaging picture book for preschool children, touching on the burden of anxiety. Like most children, Alex Allen worries about things, but unlike others, his worries materialise into a real-life llama. As Alex tries to have fun, play and get on with his everyday life, he finds this cumbersome beast keeps getting in the way. But how can he shake his mischievous new companion and the associated frets? Heartwarming, gentle and practical, the drama llama is an entertaining and colourful book, which even comes with age-appropriate tips on how to manage fears and anxiety. While it may not be an original in the market, it's certainly a sweet and worthy addition and lots of fun too. 8 out of 10, review by Holly Cowell. By Herald Magazine. Recorded from the Herald on the 21st of April 2022, from the sports section... Rangers handed Major Aaron Ramsey injury boost as midfielder season not over by David Irvin. Rangers have received a major injury boost with Aaron Ramsey's injury worries reportedly nowhere near as bad as first feared. The Welshman on loan from Juventus was forced off in the 2-1 extra time victory over Celtic at Hamden before half-time and there were fears the knock could be serious and lead to an extended period on the sidelines but the Scottish Sun claimed the hamstring problem is not a serious one after Ramsey was sent for scans. The report suggests Ramsey could even be back in action in two weeks with no significant damage from the injury. It is thought there were major fears the injury could have been the same problems as Ramsey faced at Arsenal before he headed to Serie A. 
Speaking after the injury at Hamden, Giovanni van Bronckhurst revealed he, Ramsey, had some problems with his hamstring so we need to assess it. But of course, I think he has something, but we do not know yet what it is. He could not play on, so that looks like an injury. The Scottish Sun report goes on to suggest Ramsey could be back for the May 1st derby against match against Celtic, but will miss the weekend's Motherwell clash and the trip to RB Leipzig. That article was by David Irvin. Recorded from the Herald on the 21st of April 2022, from the sports section, Scotland in talks to play Chile ahead of Argentina tour by PA Sport. Scotland are in talks to play Chile ahead of their summer tour against Argentina. The Scottish Rugby Union has confirmed the final details for Scotland's series against the Pumas, which starts on July 2nd. A statement read, discussions with Rugby Chile are ongoing regarding a potential match prior to the three-test series against Argentina. No formal agreement has been reached at this stage. The tour, the first time Scotland will have played a three-test series against a Tier 1 nation, will kick off on July 2nd in Juju, before games on the following Saturdays in Salta, Santiago del Estero. All three matches will kick off at 8.10pm and be screened live on Sky Sports. Scotland head coach Gregor Townsend said, This is an opportunity for us to see our players in a touring environment, which is what we'll experience at the Rugby World Cup, when we'll be together for at least a month. We'll be able to see how the players gel as a group and perform when they're away from home for such a long time so it'll help us with our World Cup squad selections. It'll also give us things to work on that we've identified in the last Autumn Nations series and during the recent Six Nations. That article was by PA Sport. The Herald Scotland, Thursday 21st of April 2022. Opinion Kevin McKenna when will the Yes movement realise they're being played for fools by NSP? Before any national election campaign, SNP pledges on independence have become as predictable as the first undraped chest of a Glasgow spring. You can set your watch by them. A little more than two weeks out from Scotland's local authority elections, it's been revealed that Nicola Sturgeon has hosted some gatherings on the subject of, wait for it, Scottish independence. What's more, these meetings were top-level ones and featured preparations for, you've guessed it, a second independence referendum. Not only that, there were three of these meetings, two of which were actually held this year. Also present were serious-minded chaps like John Swinney, the Deputy First Minister, and Angus Robertson, who gets to be called the Cabinet Secretary for Government Business and Constitutional Relations these days. Personally, I find it reassuring that Mr Robertson was present at this gathering, as he seemed to have dropped off the political radar in recent months. This might have been due to his marketing commitments following the publication of his new book, Vienna, The International Capital, a description unrecognisable to anyone outside of Vienna and Mr Robertson. Mr Robertson's cogitations on the history and development of Austria's capital city is, I'm told, a weighty tome which took the best part of three years to write. Being possessed of a big brain, though, he obviously found it easy to keep up with to date with all the developments of his party's preparations for the fabled second referendum, while researching the history of Vienna. And, who knows, he might even have winkled out some previously unknown connections between the development of modern Austria and Scotland's struggle for self-determination. Fortified by years of study into Austrian history, his transition from mid-European savant Two, Chief of the SNP's Independence Bureau, was obviously a smooth one. 
Of course, if you were being unkind, you might muse on the absurdity of the situation. If it were to be revealed that Steve Clark, while trying to steer Scotland's international football team to the promised land of the World Cup finals, had spent the last few years secretly working on a biographical study of Ernst Happel and his influence on the development of Austrian football. But, being an open-minded chill, I am happy instead to take comfort in the fact that the SNP's constitutional chief is a learned and well-travelled lad of peers. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. The Herald Scotland, Thursday 21st of April 2022 Opinion Could good old-fashioned personal hygiene keep Covid under control? By agenda One wee drap When either of our two daughters was going out on a date, my late mother-in-law would always tell them, Just keep mind, all it takes is one wee drap. Cautionary advice not to bring the affront of an unanticipated pregnancy to our door. That, in the Garnock Valley in those days, would invariably mean early nuptials. Her words have often come back to haunt my wife and me since COVID-19 reared its ugly head over two years ago, as we've watched the virus pop up in all sorts of situations and wreak havoc in the community. As children, our generation was taught to cover our mouths and noses when we sneezed or coughed, always have a clean hanky when leaving home, and wash our hands before meals and after visiting the toilet. Our extended families had carte blanche to scold us if we didn't follow these rules that had been handed down over the years from ancestors who probably didn't understand the science behind it, only that it helped curtail the spread of infectious disease. So why now is there such a rush for the public to get back to normal? Now we don't need to wear masks. We'll never know, of course, but if everybody had followed the basic rules of personal hygiene, would COVID have proliferated so quickly? It's still very difficult to find out how many people actually died of COVID. The statistics cite those who died within 28 days of having a positive test, but these could include people who would have died anyway whether they had a COVID test or not. Sorry if that sounds callous. The infection rates are also misleading. Anybody who isn't paid if they don't turn up for work must be tempted, if they're not subject to a compulsory testing regime, to hide any symptoms they are experiencing from their employer. Similarly, anybody in the public sector who enjoys a more generous sick pay scheme can phone in sick, saying they have the symptoms and need to isolate. It's all a bit of a brooch. We also need much more research into the effects that COVID has on different age groups in the community. People should understand that their grandchildren might be super spreaders and take appropriate measures to minimise their personal risk. Some of the media broadcasters need to stop peddling comments such as I've had COVID and it's no worse than an awful head cold when nearly 1,500 people have died after a positive test over the last seven days, according to government figures. So let's have some common sense in all this. If people want to wear masks as a matter of personal choice, let them do so. It's their business and nobody else's. And keep our fingers crossed that COVID can be kept under control. It's killed enough people already. The Herald Scotland, Thursday 21st of April 2022 Opinion Struan Stevenson It's no wonder Scottish voters despair of SNP's ineptitude. Are you a confused voter? With the council elections only two weeks away, 
Voters should be focusing on who they think may do the best job locally, rather than who they love or hate nationally. But confusion has engulfed Scotland's electorate. They are confused that while a war rages in Europe, the Scottish government continues to obsess on the need for a divisive India F2 in 2023. They are confused that while energy bills are rocketing, the SNP Green Coalition has turned its back on North Sea oil and gas and new energy-efficient nuclear plants. They are confused that while First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and Finance Secretary Kate Forbes slate the Westminster government for the cost-of-living crisis and increases in national insurance, Scottish taxpayers face the highest income tax bills in the UK, thanks to the SNP. They are confused that Nicola Sturgeon's much-vaunted Curriculum for Excellence has led to a sharp fall in Scotland's educational standards, while insidious nationalist messages are allowed to creep into our textbooks, like claiming the Loch Ness Monster is a symbol of English domination. Most of all, voters are confused that while the SNP and Greens blame Brexit and breaking away from the European Union for Scotland's woes, they want to implement Sexit and break away from our 315-year-old union with the rest of the UK. The voters are not the only ones who are confused. It seems like Scottish Government ministers share that confusion. They are confused about the need to sustain jobs in Scotland, so they awarded the £110 million deal to build two new ferries to a Turkish shipyard instead of to their own nationalised Ferguson Marine Yard on the Clyde. Determined to show that SNP and Green ministers can do a better job of running our transport services than the commercial companies, the Scottish Government has nationalised air, sea and rail, with predictably disastrous consequences at Fergus Marine and Presswick Airport. Now they have taken ScotRail into state ownership, what could possibly go wrong? Faced with the perfect storm of post-pandemic economic recovery, the cost of living crisis and the Ukraine war, the SNP government published its own half-baked recovery strategy last month. Full of self-congratulatory praise for the well-to-revealed business and economic growth schemes that have been a hallmark of SNP government incompetence for the past 15 years, the report neglected to come up with any sensible plans for growth. SNP Finance Secretary Kate Forbes was quick to demand that Chancellor Rishi Sunak should do more to help Scotland's poor, while simultaneously refusing to commit to reducing our spiral taxes in Scotland. Instead of innovative ideas to create jobs, we have witnessed the worst signs of the SNP's tendency towards authoritarianism, with their decision to introduce new regulations that will make powers granted to ministers during the pandemic permanent. The First Minister and her team seem to relish the ability to close businesses, hotels, pubs, nightclubs, universities and schools on the advice of public health experts, without the need to seek the approval of Parliament. Confusion also seems to reign in the Justice Department, where Justice Secretary Keith Brown thinks that locking up criminals is a mistake, as rape cases have soared by almost a third in the past year, and as Scotland leads the world in drug deaths, the SNP Green Coalition want criminals under the age of 25 spared jail because, at that tender age, apparently their brains are immature. There are fears that this could even include teenage killers. This is the same SNP Green Coalition that wants 16-year-olds to be able to stand for election as MSPs. Presumably they believe that someone with an immature brain might excel as an SNP Green Cabinet Secretary. 
Confusion seems also to have infected the SNP's team in London. Nothing illustrated this better than their major gaffe over pensions. Ian Blackford, the SNP's leader at Westminster, made the absurd statement that following independence, our state pension would continue to be paid by UK taxpayers. This ludicrous suggestion was quickly supported by Nicola Sturgeon and Kate Forbes, arguing that those who had contributed to the state pension pot had a right to access their pensions from it. Of course, there is no such thing as a state pensions pot. Pensions are funded from current revenue paid by today's taxpayers. If Scotland broke away from the UK, Scottish taxpayers would have to meet the pension costs. This brazen attempt to hoodwink pensioners compounded the overall view that the Nationalists have a confused grasp of Scotland's finances. They also seem to suffer from deep confusion over gender. The SNP Green Coalition's plans to reform the Gender Recognition Bill, enabling trans women to gain access to female changing rooms, toilets, hospital wards and women's prisons, appears to fly in the face of public opinion. But Nicola Sturgeon seems to adhere to the philosophy that people have a right to their opinions and she has a right to ignore them. For beleaguered Scots who wondered what an independent Scotland run by the SNP and Greens would be like, the evidence is clear and plain to see. Our public spending deficit more than doubled last year as spending increased and revenues fell due to the pandemic and repeated lockdowns. Total Scotland-related spending rose to over £99 billion, while income from taxes fell to £63 billion, leaving a gap of £36 billion, or 22.4% of GDP. How would that enormous gap be filled after independence? Right now, the Treasury at Westminster makes up the shortfall. With a hard border with England after the breakup of the UK, there would be no fiscal bailouts, and we would face swinging cuts in services like education in the NHS or massive tax hikes to make up the shortfall. These unanswered questions must surely sound alarms. But for nationalist zealots, harsh economic realities matter little compared to the dream of independence. There is a famous saying that democracy is a seesaw tilting between chaos and tolerable confusion. It seems that Scotland's separatist seesaw has passed the tolerable confusion mark and is now tilting towards chaos. Struan Stevenson was a member of the European Parliament representing Scotland 1999-2014. He is a writer and international lecturer on the Middle East. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. The Herald, Friday the 22nd of April 2022, News. Scottish gold miner ramps up production at Tindrum. This article is by Brian Donnelly. Scotland's first commercial gold mining company plans to more than double its gold output to an annual rate of 23,500 ounces by next year as it hailed record levels of gold concentrate production. Scott Gold Resources said in an update to the city production totaled 1,257 ounces of gold and 5,881 ounces of silver for the first three months of 2022, which was marginally lower than guidance, with gold currently being mined at a rate of 9,910 ounces per year, increasing to 17,500 ounces next month. The AIM-listed firm has also developed tunnels to allow access to further seams of high-grade ore 
despite coronavirus leading to up to 10 workers in quarantine at some stages during the quarter. Around 8,600 tonnes of ore was mined and transferred to the run-of mine feed pad where it is blended prior to being fed into the process plant with an average gold content of 7.7 grams per tonne. Scott Gold developed the Argyle mine a further 325 metres in the quarter, which was described as a significant step. A cut and fill stope or excavation saw 2,700 tonnes of ore at an average of 20 grams per tonne of gold mined. The increase in gold grade has seen April achieve record levels of gold concentrate production. Just over 138 tonnes of concentrate has been produced during April so far, which is comfortably ahead of any previous full month's production. There is also a further three cuts in the same excavation to extract, equating to an additional 6,000 tonnes of ore at around 17 grams per tonne of gold. Scott Gold said in summary, quarter one 2022 was a quarter during which Scott Gold executed the plan to develop tunnels in the underground mine to allow access to further areas of the mine where high-grade ore exists. This meant the process plant had to process lower-grade ore during this period. The company is pleased with how the process plant performed during this difficult quarter. Gold shipments had a sales value of £1.6 million. Shipping of concentrate was affected by global events. Gold production guidance for the second quarter is for 2,600 ounces to 3,200 ounces. Scott Gold also entered into an agreement with Fern Wealth GmbH, a wealth management company based in Switzerland, to arrange up to £3 million of funding from a syndicate of high net worth investors to fast-track Canonish optimisation initiatives. Phil Day, Scott Gold Resource Chief Executive, said, Whilst we achieved slightly lower gold production through the quarter, as we developed through the lower-grade areas in the mine, so to access the areas of known high-grade and set up cut-and-fill stopes, we have focused and delivered on our quarter one 2022 objectives. Objectives included developing the mine and maintaining the process plant feed throughout at phase one rates, seeing us achieve a 10% increase on quarter four 2021, mining and feed throughout to the process plant rate. These targets have been realised thanks to the hard work and determination of our committed team here in Tindrum. He added, Cononish is a high-grade operation and we are delineating gold grades of up to 35 grams per tonne for processing. Importantly, by adopting this cut-and-fill methodology to the short-term mine, we can better extract certain areas of the mine, obtain better indications of the geotechnical and resource characteristics in localised areas, which allows for better stability and reliability of gold production going forward from the Kurnonish mine. Our intention is to continue developing tunnels in the mine so that we can access even further areas utilising the cut-and-fill stoke mining method to exploit higher-grade areas efficiently. 
He said Canonish is already a cash generative operation, yielding attractive margins. Shares in Scott Gold closed up 0.75% at 67 pence. This article is by Brian Donnelly. The Herald, Friday the 22nd of April 2022. News. Three in four GPs facing rise in abuse from patients. This article is by Helen McArdle. Three in four GPs in Scotland say they have faced an increase in verbal abuse or aggression from their patients, leading to a huge increase in work-related stress, a new survey reveals. The findings show the impact that COVID-19 infection control measures, such as reducing access to -to face-to-face consultations, have had on the GP-patient relationship. The survey of almost 2,000 members of the Medical and Dental Defence Union of Scotland, MDDUS, investigated how healthcare professionals' experiences in the workplace had changed between the first and second year of the pandemic. Overall, it found that the UK healthcare workforce is more stressed and anxious than at the height of the COVID-19 health emergency in 2020, with frontline GPs struggling the most. Among Scottish GPs, 38% said verbal abuse from patients towards them and their practice staff had significantly increased, with a further 39% saying it had somewhat increased. Consequently, one in two GPs, 51%, are considering taking early retirement or leaving their profession altogether. The main reasons cited are increased workloads, mental health and well-being, and staff shortages. One third of all health professionals reported their current level of health and well-being is worse in comparison to the first wave of COVID-19 in spring 2020. Among GPs, this was higher, with 43% reported a downturn in their health and well-being. Of those GPs who had experienced verbal abuse or aggression in the workplace, 83% said they were feeling more stressed than they did in 2020 when the country first went into lockdown. The survey also found that female GPs were more likely to face verbal abuse or aggression, with 81% of women doctors saying they had experienced an increase in this kind of patient behaviour compared with 72% of their male colleagues. Chris Kenny, Chief Executive of MDDUS, said, The pandemic has stretched our healthcare professionals to the limit. For those at the very front line, it is clear now that the levels of stress have reached almost an unsustainable point. GPs urgently need recognition, reassurance and realism to support them so they can reset their relationship with patients. These findings should be a wake-up call for policy makers up and down the UK. Their decision-making must factor in the clear connection between adequate funding and support for primary care services and health professionals and patient safety. The survey conducted for MDDUS by the pollsters' survey also found that health professionals remain highly concerned that neither government nor regulators have the right systems and rules in place to deal fairly with complaints made by patients about decisions or actions taken during the pandemic. Across all health professionals, 
65% do not think the government is prepared for the impact of complaints relating to healthcare delivered during the pandemic. Amongst GPs, that figure increases to 70%. In 2021, healthcare regulators reassured their registrants that they will take into account the unprecedented conditions created by COVID-19, and that is reflected in the survey results. Nonetheless, a significant 49% of all respondents said they remained concerned their regulator is not prepared. Amongst GPs, the number was higher at 55%. Dr John Holden, Chief Medical Officer at MDDUS and a former GP, said the results of our survey are distressing. We know GPs work hard to ensure all patients receive care when they need it. Being a GP can be one of the best jobs in the world, but right now GPs need to feel valued, supported and empowered. In addition, regulators will need to redouble their efforts to communicate to all healthcare professionals that their systems have been revised to take into account the extraordinary conditions doctors and dentists have worked through since 2020. This article is by Helen McArdle. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 22nd of April 2022, from the sports section, Aaron Hickey is subject of £80 million Brentford bid by Ewan Payton, sports writer. Former Hearts starlet Aaron Hickey is a transfer target for Brentford, according to a report. It's stated that the Premier League outfit are willing to pay Bologna £18 million for the Scotland cap. The 19-year-old moved to the Serie A almost two years ago. His displays in either fullback position have caught the attention of various clubs across Europe. Now, according to the Daily Mail, Hickey is a subject of interest from the Bees. The report also states that an unnamed Italian club remain in contention to win his signature. Hickey has been linked with several clubs in UK soil recently, including Celtic, Aston Villa and Newcastle. In an article was by Ewan Payton. The Herald's Monday the 25th of April 2022 news. Conservatives accuse SNP of levelling down Scotland after 15 years of power. This article is by David Ball. The Tories have accused the SNP of levelling down Scotland over the last 15 years in power. The party has claimed that there is a growing chasm between those in the most and least deprived parts of Scotland. Ahead of next month's local council elections, the Conservatives have also pointed the finger at the SNP for holding Scotland back with their obsession with independence, which they said was diverting ministers' attention away from improving lives. Analysis carried out by the Scottish Conservatives showed wages are almost twice as high in East Renfrewshire as they are in Moray with residents living in the latter local authority earning on average £11.83 per hour against £20.87 per hour in East Renfrewshire. The Tories also highlighted data from Audit Scotland, which suggested people living in Scotland's most deprived areas have a healthy life expectancy of two decades less than those in the least deprived. In 2020-2021, the party said drug-related hospital admissions in Scotland's most deprived areas were more than 21 times greater than those in the least deprived. 
In the most deprived areas, the rate was 655.4 per 100,000, compared to 30.2 per 100,000 in the least deprived areas. And it said the country's education attainment gap between children from the most and least affluent areas is wider than ever. Scottish Conservative local government spokesman Miles Briggs said for 15 years Scotland has been levelled down by an SNP government that has centralised more and more power to Holyrood and neglected local communities. Across the country, Scots have seen violent crime rise, school standards slip and public services decline as their local areas have become a shadow of what they once were. And for all of Nicola Sturgeon's ludicrous talk of leading a progressive government, it is Scotland's poorest communities that have been hit hardest by SNP neglect. Savage SNP cuts to local government have robbed councils of the ability to fund local services and as a result, inequality has run rampant. Scotland's communities cannot take another five years of being levelled down by an SNP government and SNP councils fixated on pushing for another divisive independence referendum rather than improving people's lives. The SNP's leader, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, said on Saturday that the idea that local issues are being put aside in favour of independence is a ridiculous assertion. SNP MP Alison Thewlis said the party has set out plans to tackle the cost of living crisis ahead of the local government elections on May 5th, adding that voters will have the choice between SNP action or Tory inaction. The Glasgow Central MP said since 2007, every single household in Scotland has benefited from the lowest crime rates in four decades, the best performing A&D units in the UK, lower taxes and a progressive SNP policies, such as free tuition, free prescriptions, the baby box and the doubling of the Scottish child payment. Meanwhile, under Westminster control, we have been subjected to decades of austerity and now face the worst cost of living crisis in modern times, created entirely by the Tories. Ahead of the election on May the 5th, the SNP has set out plans to tackle the cost of living crisis. This includes a £150 payment to ease household budgets, expanding free early learning and childcare, introducing wraparound childcare, building 110,000 affordable homes in the next decade and developing a national care service. There is the clear choice facing the people of Scotland on May the 5th. It is a choice between SNP action, compassion and leadership, or Tory inaction, self-interest, complacency and sleaze. This article is by David Ball. The Herald, Monday the 25th of April 2022. News. Healthcare chief aiming to challenge preconceptions. This article is by Scott Wright. The company's name may suggest that cosmetic treatments are its main stock in trade, but there is a lot more to what Cosmedicare offers than what its moniker may suggest. Jill Baird, the healthcare entrepreneur who founded the business in 2016, following a career as a senior hospital manager in the NHS and the private sector, is determined to challenge any preconceived ideas people may have of her company. 
Cosmedicare, which is private hospitals in Edinburgh and Livingston, does offer cosmetic surgery. But Ms Baird is keen for that work to not overshadow the range of other procedures the company's practitioners conduct, which include breast reconstruction following trauma and the treatment of burn injuries. Cosmetic surgery almost diminishes what we actually do, Ms Baird told the Herald. A lot of our work is reconstructive work. It is post-trauma reconstruction. We do burns work. We do a substantial amount of transgender reassignment surgery. We are more healthcare related. I see myself as a healthcare entrepreneur as opposed to a cosmetic surgery entrepreneur. Ms Baird, who launched Cosmedicare after spotting a gap in the market for a specialist service for cosmetic and reconstructive surgery, likened the firm St Ellen's Hospital in Livingston to Ross Hall in Glasgow or those operated by Spire. St Helens, which opened in October, offers procedures such as plastic, reconstructive and weight loss surgery and will be moving into areas such as orthopaedics and diagnostics, including the likes of MRI scans, x-rays and mammograms. Cosmedicare's Edinburgh Park facility treats outpatients in areas like private GP services fertility treatment and hair transplants. It's a medical healthcare company we are, Ms Baird said. She was speaking shortly after revealing plans to invest to open a new private day case hospital on Glasgow's Socky Hall Street as part of a wider five-year growth strategy. The hospital, which Ms Baird is aiming to open towards the end of the year, will be housed in the former slum dog bar and kitchen and will specialise in day cases offering procedures such as breast reconstruction, cosmetic surgery, pain management, private GP services and bariatrics. Ms Board notes the 2.5 million investment is being planned as increasing numbers of people are opting for private hospital treatment in the west of Scotland. And while demand has increased during the pandemic, she said people were seeking treatment outside the NHS before the crisis began. Everyone knows right now that the NHS is stretched to its limits, Ms Baird said. I think there has been a societal, behavioural change over the last five years. Part of that is to do with Covid, but it was coming before that as well, and a recognition that the NHS cannot be an infinite resource It cannot be all things to all people. As much as there are financial constraints just now, with the other political and economic aspects that are happening in the world, people are prioritising their health and their well-being to have a good quality of life. And I think they are understanding that there is a personal responsibility for that in terms of how you live your life and look after your health. That doesn't necessarily mean private healthcare insurance. I think historically people associated accessing private healthcare with having private healthcare insurance, but actually the model that we work is to a self-pay, self-referral service. You do not need private healthcare insurance. You can pick up the phone, speak to us about the issues you're experiencing, and we can create a pathway where you can access the proper medical professionals and services that you need.
although as a private operator, Cosmedicare is benefiting from the growing demand for services outside the NHS. Ms Baird passionately believes in the need for a strong healthcare service that is free at the point of care. She is concerned at the extent to which private sector companies are making money from the NHS as a result of the government outsourcing services and argues that it would be more cost-effective to the health service if those operations were brought back in-house. Cosmedicare have not pursued any NHS contracts, Ms Baird said. I don't believe in doing that. Ms Baird added, as healthcare professionals, we have a duty of care. All of my consultants are senior NHS consultants. We have benefited greatly from NHS training and support. Meanwhile, Ms Baird said she would like the new hospital she is planning for Glasgow to play a part in the regeneration of Suckey Hall Street, which has suffered acutely from the fallout of the pandemic. I would like to think so, she said. I was born and raised in the east end of Glasgow and I remember the city centre being a vibrant part of my childhood. Even before Covid, with the rise of online shopping, the high street has been affected by that. So it would be nice to play a part in creating a new vision of services that could be offered within quite iconic buildings. She added, I'm a strong believer that someone has to go first and pave the way, then others will follow. And Ms Baird pledged that the expansion of Cosmedicare will not end on Suckey Hall Street. She revealed that the firm, which has 50 people on the payroll and employs senior NHS consultants to carry out procedures, is looking to extend its presence at the St Helens Hospital in Livingston, where it is based on the Kirkton campus. We are focused on both geographical and service expansion, she said. We are not closed off to having other locations in Glasgow as well. Six questions. What countries have you most enjoyed travelling to for business or leisure and why? I love lots of different types of cultures, from European city trips to far-flung exotic locations with tropical landscapes and adventure. It really depends what mood I'm in at the time. When you were a child, what was your ideal job? Why did it appeal? I wanted to be a forensic pathologist or a lawyer. I loved the idea of solving problems and speaking out for those who couldn't. What was your biggest break in business? It's not happened yet, but it's coming. I can feel... From the Herald, Scotland, Monday the 25th of April 2022, from the sports section, Ross County nil, Celtic 2, Kyogo and Jota amongst the goals as Hoop stays 6 points clear at the top, article first published on the 24th of April by David Irvin. They say good things come to those who wait, and when it comes to Celtic and Dingwall, there's no truer statement. It took them 97 minutes to triumph over Ross County last time in the Highlands and while it wasn't quite as long a wait this time around, it wasn't over until 3 minutes from time. Kyogo Furuhashi grabbed his first goal since December 19th on his first start back since his long-term hamstring injury layoff to settle the nerves after 12 minutes. And Jota sealed victory after a long and at times difficult wait with his first strike in the league since a double against Aberdeen in February, three minutes from time. Ange Postelicoglu made three changes to his side from the extra time loss to Rangers at Hamden last week. In came Matt O'Reilly 
Anthony Ralston and Kyogo, with injured Joseph Juranovic missing from the squad and Tom Roglic and Lee Labada forced to settle for a spot on the bench. In the home dugout, Malky Mackay also altered his side. Captain Keith Watson was reinstated to his centre-back role alongside Alex Iokoviti and Jack Baldwin out of the squad. It was one of the changes who almost, that, who almost had an instant impact in Dingwall, too. Kyogo was in fine form in the Highlands as he came close to breaking the deadlock, and his 126-day injured hampered scoring drought within the first two minutes. O'Reilly's whipped corner was scrambled away from the goal line, but fell to the Japanese striker inside the area. Fortunately for County, Jordan White was on hand to hook over the bar. There would be no questions over Ross County's commitment to make a game of things on their own patch. Ross Callaghan's crunching challenge on Callum McGregor five minutes in was evidence of that. But it would be an uphill battle after Mackay's men surrendered an early lead. Jota jinked in and out on the right flank before floating an inviting cross into the middle where Kyogo was afforded far too much space as he rose to direct the ball into the bottom corner past the despairing Ross Laidlaw. It was a terrific finish and they had rapturous celebrations from the Celtic support. On the half hour, Kyogo could have had a second. Giotto again found space to hang a ball up at the far post, where Kyogo was there to acrobatically take aim, but his shot spiralled into the air before hitting the bar and bounced clear. Ross County were quiet but grew into the first half as the ball was switched left to right before Blair Spittle bunched into the box to cross goal but Hart was commanding as he collected comfortably 7 minutes from the break. One minute later and County again could have fallen further behind. O'Reilly's long range effort was spilled uncharacteristically by the impressive Laidlaw. Kyogo raced onto the loose ball but his rebound strike was excellently turned wide by Laidlaw. Two minutes from half time and Celtic were knocking at the door for a second again. Jota sent a perfect cross into the box for Dyson Maeda to follow a goal, but Laidlaw again turned it clear. Six minutes into the second period and it was Jota again causing problems. This time he floated the ball into the six yard box, having seen his first driven cross blocked, where O'Reilly headed goalwards only for Watson to head off the line. Then came County's big moment. Regan Charles Cook got the better of Jota and surged into the box where he cut back for Harry Payton. The midfielder steadied himself before sending a low drive towards goal. Only for Cameron Carter-Vickers to block the effort with a tremendous sliding block. It was a breathless opening to the second half and the action continued with Jota driving straight up to the other end and unleashing a powerful drive which required a strong block from Watson with 55 minutes on the clock. Another couple of minutes passed and it was County who had the chance to restore parity. Charles Cook delivered for Watson to send back into the six-yard box where Hart punched to the edge. Harry Payton was waiting but sent his improvised volley well over. Possibly Coglu must have been scratching his head at how his side were under so much pressure having created so much in the opening 45 minutes and he was left wondering what his side would have to do to score a second not long after, as Carol Starfelt was next to go close as his header ricocheted in the box before being turned wide by Jake Vulkins. The away end began to fall quiet as nerves appeared to creep in 
during the closing stages with County on top, albeit unable to find a leveller. The hosts were desperate for an equaliser after an industrious performance in their well-drilled system, but there was nothing doing when sub-Joseph Hungbo went down in the box under little contact from Greg Taylor. The appeals were frantic in the homestands, but Kevin Clancy correctly waved play on. Lee Labada could have killed the match just 8 minutes after coming on with 72 minutes played, as a sliced Tom Rogic shot fell at his feet in the box, but he dragged his effort wide. Three minutes from time and Celtic finally sealed a huge victory in the Scottish Premiership title race. Abada crossed for sub Georgios Giacomakis, who watched his effort strike the bar. But Jota was on hand to throw himself at the rebound and force over the line to keep Celtic six points clear at the top. And that report was by David Irvin. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 25th of April 2022. From the sports section, Scott Wright pinpoints the Rangers' quality that was key to win over Motherwell. By James Kearney, sports writer. Rangers' victory over Motherwell on Saturday was one that was achieved the hard way. But, for winger Scott Wright, it was simply the latest evidence of the team's character as he bounced back to seal three points at Fir Park. Liam Kelly's first half-own goal had Giovanni Van Bronckhurst's men on their way to the win before Leon Balogun's dismissal around the half-hour mark left his side in the lurch. As the men from Ibrox adjusted to going a man down, they shipped a goal as their opponents began to turn the screw. Rangers rode out the pressure and went into the break with the scores at 1-1 before rallying after the restart. Wright's goal after a couple of minutes put the champions back in the driving seat before James Tavernier sealed the win as the Ibrox skipper slammed home a penalty to register his 80th goal for the club. Reflecting on the performance, Wright reckoned it was just the latest episode where he and his teammates had to prove their mettle. And coming off the back of extra time victories over Braga in the Europa League and Celtic in the Scottish Cup, the wide player believes that the Rangers are repeatedly demonstrating their steeliness as we approach the business end of the campaign. I think the big word there is proud, Wright said of the performance. I really thought we'd dug together as a team and showed the togetherness of the team. It's been there in abundance in the past week and shows everything we are as a team. That's two extra times and here going down to 10 men so early and coming back. So I feel really proud of every player today. The victory ended up being a fairly comfortable one for the Glasgow Giants, but it didn't always look like it would end that way. Motherwell exerted some real pressure towards the end of the first half asked some tricky questions of their opponents and levelled the scores to Ross Tierney as the visitors adjusted to their numerical disadvantage. Wright's strike two minutes into the second half changed all that. Fashion Sikala drove down the left before shifting the ball to the former Aberdeen man who took a touch before rifling the ball past Kelly. Now the onus was shifted onto Graham Alexander's men as Rangers sat back and invited pressure looking to strike on the counter. It would have been ideal if we could have held on to the lead a bit longer, Wright conceded, but we went down to 10 men and they scored and it was always going to be an uphill battle. We weren't going to have as much as the ball, but in the second half we stuck to the game plan and kept possession better. Getting the goal quite early in the second half helped us settle down. Then we pushed for more. 
for me, it was a goal I've been waiting a long time for. I found opportunities hard to come by, and all I've had to do is work hard in training, and when I've been called upon, make sure I take my chance. I hope I've done that. Wright certainly hasn't harmed his case to be included in the starting lineup for Thursday night's Europa League semi-final against RB Leipzig, while supporters will also be encouraged by Sakala's performance at Fair Park. The pair have blown a little hot and cold this season, but Wright insists that his confidence has never suffered. The duo's combination play might not have reaped any rewards in the first half against Motherwell, but Wright had little doubt they would combine to devastating effect in the second. When the ball came to me, I just wanted to get it out of my feet early and hit it as soon as possible, Wright said of his goal. I had a chance at the end of the first half with Fash too, when I tried to square up the defender and take it with my left. I said to him, hopefully we'll get another one in the second half, and it was perfect. My eyes lit up. I just got got it out of my feet with the first touch and stuck it back across the goalie. I was delighted when it went in. I've always had to stay confident. I think that's the most important thing. You need to trust yourself and make sure that when you're called upon, you can help improve the team, and that's what I did. All I can do now is wait for my next opportunity and show the manager what I can do. And, hopefully, he can trust me and put me in again. That article is by James Kearney. From Herald Scotland, Monday the 25th of April 2022. From the obituary section... Stuart Mitchell, classicist who defended Christianity in Letters to the Herald. Stuart Mitchell, born January 1st, 1946, died January 31st, 2022. Stuart Mitchell, classicist, musician, book lover, Christian apologist and one-time principal of Hamilton College in Lancashire, has died aged 76 of cancer. His passing deprived Scotland of an ordinary, yet extraordinary, citizen. A frequent contributor to the letters pages of the Herald, a survey of what he put there in the public domain is testimony to the range of learning he valued from his early years. Greek particles, standards in education, the value of reading the classics in their original languages and, perhaps the most frequent focus of all, his conviction about the truth of Christianity demonstrated by his eagerness to defend it from what he perceived as misunderstanding and unjust interpretation. In one letter, in November 2016, he rounded on the scientism of a fellow letter writer, part of the intolerant Abolish All Religion Brigade. Christian fundamentalism, Michael asserted, may indeed be rife in the American Bible Belt, but, the writer's hoary Mark Twain quip, believing what you know ain't so, simply encapsulates the shallow impatience of the militant sceptic, not the passion of a sincere seeker. A classics scholar, and in professional life a classics teacher, his early and precocious love of learning, and decent languages in particular, was spectacularly demonstrated in the most unlikely of settings, Kirkintillo's swimming pool. While his early teenage peers perfected their breaststrokes in the pool, he opted to remain in the spectator's gallery, immersed in a Greek grammar book. Were this a 21st century image, it would potentially go viral. Far from being an isolated incident, much later in life, during a time when he provided music at Paisley Crematorium, 
He brushed up on his Hebrew grammar between services. Stuart J. Mitchell was born on January 1st, 1946. Though he retained a lifelong affection for Hereford, the place of his birth, as a youngster he moved with his family to Scotland. He attended the High School of Glasgow, where his most cherished subjects were Latin, Greek and music. Subsequently, he progressed to the Glasgow University to study classics with subsidiary music in Hebrew. Returning to the school to begin his teaching career as a probationer, he proved that, with his encouragement and demand for high standards, pupils from lower states could outperform their more academic peers. Extra classes at lunchtime and after school were his way of enabling his pupils to take crash higher Greek. No mean achievement. In 1973, he became principal teacher of classics at Airdrie Academy, where he was regarded as a gifted and inspiring teacher, attracting considerable numbers of pupils to study Latin and Greek, and in whom he instilled a keen interest in the language, literature and wisdom of ancient cultures. Memorable trips to Athens and Rome are fondly remembered by his former pupils and colleagues. In 1983, he was invited to take the position of Assistant Principal to the founder of Hamilton College and, in 1987, became the Principal. The school's own website records that Mr Mitchell can justly be described as a man of formidable intellect, a most able administrator and an extraordinary pianist. To describe him as an extraordinary pianist might be deemed an understatement. His pianistic skills were nothing short of spectacular and he was a rare form of musician who both an expert improviser and a meticulous exponent of classical music in its last detail. He was an avid collector of both popular and rare performances of symphonies and concertos. In anticipation of his funeral, he selected two movements from Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 to be shared with the mourners. Among his other composer favourites was Dmitry Shostakovich, whose works he had encountered in his teenage years. During lockdown, he passed the time reading Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey and Virgil's The Aeneid in the original languages. He also read Horace. He loved the odes of that ancient Roman poet and was very like him, never one to show off or seek the fashionable crowd. His broad intellectual tastes included the poetry of E. Horseman, contemporary works of fiction and books about the cosmos. He was passionately interested in theological works, but also in the dilemmas that theology presents, such as the problem of suffering. He finally summed up so such dilemmas in a reassuring article titled Beyond the Final Curtain. Stuart's life was underpinned in all things by his Christian faith. He regularly preached at his home church, West Glasgow New Church, and served on the Council of Advisors for the organisation, Grasping the Netto, which takes seriously the need to look carefully methodically at the evidence for the truth of Christianity. Stuart's beloved wife Elaine preached the system in 2005 and he is survived by two daughters, Karen and Pauline, and by five grandchildren, in whose progress he took great delight. He also leaves behind his close friend, Eleanor, who has been his joy, soulmate and helper for many years. And that was the obituary of Stuart Mitchell, born January 1st, 1946, died January 31st, 2022. The Herald, Tuesday the 26th of April, 2022. News. 
adults given AstraZeneca much more likely to have COVID breakthrough infections. This article is by Helen McCardle. Adults given the AstraZeneca vaccine were much more likely to suffer breakthrough COVID infections compared to those given the Pfizer vaccine, researchers have found. A study involving all fully vaccinated adults in Belgium showed substantially higher protection from mRNA vaccines such as Pfizer and Moderna compared to the AstraZeneca and Janssen brands, which used a more traditional viral vector formula. People who had recovered from COVID infection prior to being vaccinated also had the lowest risk of breakthrough infection overall. The findings are being presented at the conclusion today of the European Congress of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, ECCMID, in Lisbon, Portugal. The results are also published in the journal Viruses. Uptake was high in Belgium, with more than 80% of adults having received two COVID vaccine doses by August 11, 2021. Belgium used four types of vaccine, Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, Oxford, AstraZeneca and Janssen. In the UK, the AstraZeneca vaccine was largely given to over 40s for the first two doses, with under 40s mainly allocated the Pfizer vaccine. The study led by Dr. Veal Stutten, an epidemiologist and expert in immunology at the Belgian Public Health Institute, Cien Sano, studied the incidence of breakthrough infections where the virus breaks the protective barrier of vaccination for each vaccine brand. The study included more than 8 million adults in Belgium who were fully vaccinated against COVID-19 between February the 1st and December the 5th, 2021. Participants were followed up for an average of 150 days from 14 days after their second dose. Nearly 1 in 20, 4.6%, had a breakthrough infection, which the researchers calculated would translate into a rate of 11.2 breakthrough infections for every 100 fully vaccinated people over the course of a year. The researchers found that the AstraZeneca vaccine was associated with a 68% higher risk of a breakthrough infection than the Pfizer vaccine after adjusting for variables including age, sex, prior COVID-19 infection and a person's exposure to the SARS-CoV-2 virus through their profession or environment. Adults doubly vaccinated with Moderna were also 32% less likely to experience breakthrough infection compared to those given two doses of Pfizer. There was a higher incidence of breakthrough infections in younger age groups, 18 to 64 years old, than in older age groups, 65 to 84 or 85 plus year olds, which the scientists said might be due to differences in social behaviour. Healthcare workers were 40% less likely to develop a breakthrough infection than non-healthcare workers, probably reflecting high vaccine coverage and intensive use of PPE while at work. The analysis also found that those with a prior COVID-19 infection before vaccination were 77% less likely to have a breakthrough infection than those who had never had COVID previously. The researchers stressed that the study was not designed 
to carry out a formal comparison of vaccine effectiveness between brands. However, they also noticed that period of study largely covered the time when the Alpha and then Delta variants were dominant. The Omicron strain had been associated with higher levels of breakthrough infection due to mutations which better equip it to evade immunity built up from vaccination or prior infection. In the week ending April 17th in Scotland, 3,242 of the confirmed COVID cases were reinfections where a person tests positive more than 90 days after their last positive test, equivalent to more than 10% of the known cases that week. The Belgian study also predates effects of boosters. In the UK, Pfizer and to a lesser extent Moderna were used for third doses. Dr Stoughton said, We identified risk factors associated with breakthrough infections, such as vaccination with adenoviral vector vaccines, which could help inform future decisions on booster vaccination strategies internationally. Moreover, we observed that hybrid immunity of combined prior infection and vaccination not only lowered the risk of breakthrough infections, but also of having symptoms when experiencing a breakthrough infection, highlighting its protective effect. The majority of the breakthrough infections included in this study occurred during the period when the Delta variant was dominant. We expect to see similar patterns regarding characteristics of breakthrough infections due to the Omicron variant, but we need to continue to monitor breakthrough infections and study their severity and multiple recurrences, as well as the role of emerging variants to confirm this. This article is by Helen McCardle. The Herald, Tuesday the 26th of April 2022, News. Yes, parties have an edge in council elections, says report. This article is by Tom Gordon. Pro-independence parties should find it easier to demonstrate momentum in next month's local elections, the country's leading pollster has said. Professor Sir John Curtis of Strathclyde University said the unionist camp was at a potential disadvantage as Labour and Tory supporters were reluctant to back each other's parties through the STV preferential voting system. SNP and Green supporters were more likely to give each other lower preference votes, giving the impression that there is momentum behind support for independence. Alex Salmon's Alaba party is also part of the mix of yes parties this year. Professor Curtis makes a point in a new paper on the use of the single transferable vote, which has elected Scotland's councillors since 2007. Written for the Electoral Reform Society, the paper found voters have increasingly adapted to the STV, making ever greater use of their preferential votes. However, Professor Curtis said... They were also more polarised, with yes supporters less likely to give a lower preference to a unionist candidate and unionists less likely to give a lower preference to a pro-independence candidate, pointing to the most constitutionally divided council elections so far on May 5th. STV allows voters to rank candidates in order of preference, letting them back more than one party, and next month's election will be the fourth time voters have headed to the polls using the system.
The research found that in 2017, almost 86% of valid ballot papers had at least two preferences, similar to the figure in 2012, and well up on the 78% that did so in 2007. In 2017, just over 60% of valid ballot papers contained three or more preferences, up on 55.8% in 2012 and 54% in 2007. The analysis also found the constitutional question was shaping how voters rank candidates. Some 46% of SNP voters gave their next preference after all SNP candidates had been eliminated from the count to a party other than the Conservatives, Labour or Liberal Democrats. This was well up on the 18% that did so in 2012. Just 24% of SNP supporters gave their next preference to one of the three main unionist parties, well down on the 38% who did in 2012. And Labour backers in 2017 were much more likely than they had been in 2012 to give their next preference to a candidate from another unionist party, either a Lib Dem at 26% or a Conservative 12%. This, in both cases, was around double that in 2012. Professor Curtis said independent supporters were less likely to give a lower preference to a unionist candidate while backers of the union were less likely to give a lower preference to a pro-independence candidate. Meanwhile, the pattern of voting behaviour in last year's Holyrood election suggests that this polarisation of yes and no supporters may well be even more marked in this year's local ballot. Consequently, the outcome in May is unlikely just to turn on the distribution of first preferences. It will also depend on how yes and no voters use the opportunity afforded by the STV ballot paper to express more than one choice and on what the parties do or do not do to encourage them to do so. Transfers have played a greater role in deciding the eventual winner than before with only 38.5 of candidates elected on first preference alone in 2017 five points down on the equivalent figure in 2012 and slightly below the 40% who were elected that way in 2007. In the last local election, as many as 101 seats, 8% of the total, were won by candidates who were not initially in a winning position, well up on the 68 seats in 2012 and 73 in 2007. In 2017, around 7 in 10 Tory, Labour and SNP supporters gave preferences to other parties or independents when there was no more candidates of their first choice party left. Darren Hughes, Chief Executive of the Electoral Reform Society, said, In Scotland, we see an electorate that has embraced this new form of voting, ranking their preferences instead of being forced by a winner-takes-all system to take a gamble on one option, which they often view as the least worst. With local authorities in Wales now also able to make the change to STV, the results in Scotland offer a powerful example of the benefits of adopting a fairer system. Where local councils north of the border have led the way, it's time for the rest of the UK to follow and embrace the power of preferences, 
so making proportional representation the norm. This article is by Tom Gordon. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.